out there, rock and rollers, and welcome to the 52nd edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recording here in London, just off Historic Abbey Road. And Historic Abbey Road is the theme today. Yes, I live about 40 yards away from the street and maybe about six or seven blocks away from the historic recording studio. But just recently, the recording studio was celebrating its 90th anniversary. And to commemorate that, they were having lectures in the studio, which means fans could actually get tickets and go into Studio 2, where the Beatles recorded most everything they ever did, and other little bands like Pink Floyd and Oasis and Cliff Richard and The Shadows and Ben Sting, who, God, all the greats have recorded there at some point or another over the years, and it was an incredible opportunity for me to get in there and just fan geek out and just be in awe of all the history and all the amazing music that had taken place there over the years, and we're going to get way in depth on it here on this show. First, I want to thank all who listened to our double 50th episode, which was on the movie and soundtrack to Highlander, the classic 1986 fantasy action science fiction drama that may not have had a big budget, but grew into a big cult following and actually had a very big effect on me and Jackson and a lot of other people our age in America and around the world. And I especially want to thank Ryan Condal, the executive producer, writer, creator, showrunner of House of the Dragon, the prequel series to Game of Thrones, which is coming out in 2022. He was gracious enough to do an interview with us on part two of our 50th relating to Highlander because he did in fact write a reboot script for Highlander that eventually he didn't work on. But he also is a collector of movie props and movie swords and he was knowledgeable about some of the swords used in that movie and their provenance and where they are today and talked a little bit about his collection as well. So we really thank you, Ryan. We had a great time talking to you, and I hope you guys were able to check out those episodes. Now, as always, you can find us at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com where you can see all of our past episodes and find all the different ways to follow us. The number one way, of course, being Twitter, where I'm at ugly underscore werewolf and Jackson's at actionjack72, where you can send us messages, follow us, see what's coming up, shoot us a DM, let us know what's going on with you and which albums or bands or concerts or movies you would like us to review. But back to Abbey Road, I don't know if there's a more iconic studio in the world. If you say, give me the name of the world's most famous recording studio, I guarantee you Abbey Road's going to be at the top of almost everybody's list. If it gets past three, somebody's being a little esoteric. Somebody's just trying to show off how smart they are, how many different places they know, because I really don't think there's anybody, any place more famous. It's where the Beatles did all of their songs. It's where John Williams has done so many incredible soundtracks, like so almost every Star Wars film, like all those Indiana Jones films. They did the Hobbit movies there, and the Lord of the Rings movies. They've done James Bond films there. They did the Harry Potter scores there. My seven-year-old loves How to Train Your Dragon. They did that there. And of course, Highlander, the score by Michael Kamen, was recorded there as well. So we're going to tell you a little bit about my experience and just once-in-a-lifetime opportunity of being able to get in there, listen to two men who happen to be Americans who know so much about the studio, have done some incredible research, they share a lot with you, and the fact that you can not only get in there but see the actual piano that they may have played some of the Magical Mystery Tour on or, or some of the White Album or, or any of your favorite stuff, some of that stuff is sitting in there today and is still being used 
on a daily basis. It's not in a museum. It's in a working studio. And that's what we're going to talk about here today on The Wolf. So for all you historians, anyone who loves the Beatles, and with Get Back, the Peter Jackson documentary that's being released on the same day as I believe this podcast is about the history of the Beatles and their time at Abbey Road and them breaking up, then this could be a great way to learn a little bit about the room where they did all that. We're talking about Abbey Road Studios and my visit there right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. I felt like such royalty being in Abbey Road today. It's kind of unbelievable to just to think that, because you can't just walk in there. It's not like they always have tours, but they are doing these lectures for their 90th anniversary. So you get to go in, man. You get to go in to Studio 2, where the Beatles worked all the time and where Pink Floyd worked and whomever else, right next to Studio 1, where they've made some of the best film scores Certainly in the last 40 years. I don't know. It was pretty It was pretty neat. It was a pretty neat way to spend the morning and put me in a good mood. But that's good. It looked like you were having a good time from the photos. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they, they let you in. They got to let you take a picture on the steps, like walking in or whatever. I'd seen other folks on, like, Twitter all week with their, you know, photos there. So I'm like, well, I hope I get to do that. You would pitch this show as recorded close to Abbey Road Studios. So it would only be natural that you would bring it all together and actually go and see it when you got the opportunity. Absolutely. It has to be, it has to be, and I was thinking about this because we were texting back and forth. We've got famous places here in the United States. We've got Electric Lady, we've got Muscle Shoals, there's you know a whole bunch of stuff in Los Angeles, but for classic rock, the classic rock genre, this is the mecca of everything. I mean, what was it like I mean, you got the tickets. Okay, it's you know, it's it's. I don't know how well. I don't know how much far out you got it, the tickets, but it was like, okay, I've got two days. I've got you know, one day. Oh, here it comes. I mean, what was the excitement leading up to this? Yeah, well, I don't think I had the tickets for a month. I think they went on sale pretty quickly, and as soon as I saw it, I may have seen it on Twitter. It was just like, click, yes, click, yes, click, and then I had it. <laughs> 
which is which is great. But you know, obviously, I live so close to the studio. I'm by there quite a bit, and the wall they have out front. It's kind of a wall, and they have a big kind of rod iron gate above it, so people you can't just wander onto the property. But on the outside, they paint that every once in a while because people come and put they sign it or they put pictures in it or they stick you know podcast stickers on it or something like that. Then when they're celebrating the release of an album or a, a, the anniversary of an album, like when All Things Must Pass recently had a 50 year anniversary, they had you know basically a big sticker, but it's like paint all over the uh, the walls out there and the columns to commemorate it. Album cover, album art, you know, all the words. Let It Be has its anniversary. You got the four faces out there. It, it's it's kind of fun. I and mean, once in a while, you might see John Lennon's old psychedelic Rolls Royce roll up or whatever. But so I was walking by one day, I think it was in the spring, and uh, they were doing lectures, they are doing some kind of tour in there, and I hadn't heard about it. And so... People were out there. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, yeah, we can go online and, and you can buy tickets to, to do this. I'm like, ah, so I jumped in. And the first time around, I was totally sold out. But then they're doing this for the fall. And as we're recording this, it's two days after the 90th anniversary of the launch or the, the, the grand opening, I guess they called it back then, of Abbey Road. And they had a video of the composer, conductor, the first time in there with the mini orchestra doing Pomp and Circumstance, or it's 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 called uh, The Land of Hope and Glory. It's kind of the walking down the aisle at graduation song uh, that we're all kind of familiar with. That was the first thing recorded there, and they filmed it, and that was kind of part of the presentation. Anyway, I saw that it was going on when I, I think on Twitter I saw it. I said, boom, that's it. I've got to go. I have to get in there. I mean, I walk by it every day. It's part of why you move over here, so you can do some fun stuff like that. And a lot of this stuff has been shut down for the last year and a half, so... I was so excited to be able to go. So first of all, that song that you're referring to is the Macho Man's uh, opening theme when he comes down the aisle, just so you know. Number two... With Miss Elizabeth? Yeah, correct. Absolutely. I liked him as the Macho Man. I thought the Macho King was kind of kind of, kind of dumb, but... <laughs> that went too far for you. Yeah. I like the Macho <laughs> Man, though. God, God, God rest him. So this was the first purposely built studio, correct? I think I was reading, like, they, it was... Uh, it was originally a house, and then in the 30s, it was converted to be a music recording space. Yes, exactly. Now, it was pretty neat, and the lecture was given by two Americans, actually. What? Yeah, no. Brian Kehue and, and Kevin Ryan, they had researched a book on, like, all the instruments and all the equipment used to make every Beatles song and so they had great access to Abbey Road and they had uh, went through all this research and all these archives and found some amazing shots and, and, and things like that. So they did kind of tell the story that an American had come to London to start a recording business back when you would scratch the needle, you know, through a megaphone. It was all and it was all kind of hand cranked. It was not electronic. There were weights and pulleys and stuff to make it kind of go evenly. But that's what it was. It was at a hotel in in downtown London and then and now I think that hotel is like a pizza joint or something like that but they did really well at the business so then they basically went out and had a huge factory outside of the city because it wasn't just that they were recording it but they had you know the pressing and you know everyone working there making the records which was still by hand but then you know they 
And then after a while, they realized as recording got better, because in the 20s, microphones were invented. And that's something that Abbey Road has been at the forefront of, and EMI, which was the company that that formed with a, a technology company and the recording company, basically created EMI. So that's where that came from. A lot of great history in it. And then, yeah, they're like, we can't be out here by the factories with trains going by and production and big banging and stuff like that. That's bad for recording. So then they had to find someplace new. And yes, they found a place in St. John's Wood, which is a quiet residential neighborhood. They bought the house, which had a huge backyard, huge back garden, which, of course, they built out and built studios into. And they also built, they bought a couple of, of the lots next to it as well. So it, it looks smallish from the street because the facade, the original house, although a big house by you know standards around here, yes, certainly, but you can't see how far back it goes and how far deep down it goes. The studios, Jackson, were at least 30 feet tall. Wow. Well, I mean, you figure that they have to accommodate everything from, I mean, you think of Abbey Road as the Beatles. Okay, I get it. The Beatles were only four guys, but I mean, they get entire studio orchestras in that place so yes it has to be big and you want it when you're recording i guess it's different when you record something that's electronic like a like a guitar or uh vocals or something that's going through an amp or a mic it would be different than trying to capture the sound of an orchestra because you'd want to have a large room and set the acoustics and it's just different the way that you pick it up so did they have historical equipment in there? Like, was it kind of a museum also, or is this just a straight recording studio? So, so, so dig this, man. So, all right, so you, you walk in, all right, you're on the curb there, just like anybody else stopping to take a picture. And they say, all right, give us your tickets, all right, come on in. They give you a little laminate, <clears throat> and it takes a little while to get in because everybody gets to take their picture in right. front of, on the steps, walking into Abbey Road studio. Yeah. You know? So, and that's fun. That's, that's a neat part of it. You go through security, and then you just basically walk down the hallway, and then you walk down some steps. And on the steps, you can see pictures of Oasis, and you can see pictures of the Beatles and George Martin, and you know, all sorts of amazing artists throughout history. And Nile Rodgers is in there, of course. You know, you'd see John Williams. And then in another part, there's a lot of movie posters. You know, like Star okay. Wars and Hobbit and Harry Potter and James Bond posters, and they're signed by John Williams and and all sorts of folks. But they they lead you down. There's only three studios. I didn't really get a look at Studio Three, but they brought us down into Studio Two, where the Beatles did all sorts of stuff in there, and Pink Floyd did plenty of stuff in there. You know, the Hollies were in there, and the Shadows, and you know, a lot of bands over the years. But but it's kind of neat. And 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 okay. So then the fun starts, Jackson. So you get in there, you walk in, and they have pianos around. And they have signs of the pianos talking about, this is Celeste, and you can hear this on Strawberry Field. Or, you, you know, this is... Okay. And it's, yeah. not just, you, yeah. it's not just that that's the kind of instrument they use. It's like, that's the one. Yeah. And, Jackson, and they had a lot of those. Like, they said, here's the three pianos. You can really hear this one, especially on... On you know the different songs, Obla Dia, Obla Da, and I'm like, oh my god, and you you can hear it in the sound of the room and in the sound of the keys. And then they played a little bit. These guys who were giving the lecture came over, just just hit a couple of, of notes, but it was amazing. But the story is though, if you record there, you know, you book the room, you can use the Celeste, you can use the piano, you can use the Echo Room. 
that the Beatles used back in the day, you know, it, it's unbelievable. And they even showed this amazing picture of, because they have a, a division called Abbey Road Red that is developing microphone and like audio technology, you know, and they've been doing that for a long time at Abbey Road over the years, like pushing the limits and the boundaries of what you can do. But they were, uh, they showed a picture of this guy had something that looked like, you know, like a, like a phaser out of Star Trek kind of thing. It, 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 uh -huh. it had like a little microphone on top of it. It was handheld, and then it's a little pointer coming out. They said, what is that thing that he's holding? That's, what is that weird thing? Well, that helps create sound so you can test speakers and get levels on speakers. And in fact, and this is a picture in like the 60s when the Beatles were experimenting during their Sgt. Pepper days. So they could they wanted to measure different things and make sure they got all the sounds just right. They said, oh, yeah, and by the way, it was like in a drawer. Here it is. You know, and they showed it. There's one in the world. That's the one made at Abbey Road Studios, and they still use it today to test levels on speakers and microphones and stuff like that. So I'm like, that is so cool. It was mind blowing to be in there, and just little things like that was like worth the price of admission. And then, yeah, okay. So so that's that makes me happy because that's what. I was expecting to be there, hopefully, and stuff like that. You know, you, you really want to. That's why you paid to get in there. I mean, if they're going to talk to you about, well, you know, this is the Ultron 547 console. That was, I, I don't care about that. I want, I want to be in the studio where the Beatles were. I want to see the piano, yes, that was on there. And what I didn't realize is the Beatles never recorded at Abbey Road Studios. They recorded at, what was it, EMI. That's right. And they, then they renamed it. I always thought it was just Abbey Road like from day one, but they, it, they named it after them. So, I mean, talk about something that's synonymous with each other. I mean, that studio space and the Beatles are hand in hand. And I know that it ran into some trouble recently, a couple years ago, financial trouble. They were going to sell it possibly. And then there was like a group of people like, why does, why does McCartney not own this place? Mm -hmm. What that I've, what's, like just buy it and, and keep it. So we're cutting ahead a little bit here, but to just to have that, to have that space and to have so many things that we love created there in the same space, not like, Oh yeah, you know, it, it was, it, they moved it from A to B and it used to be here and then it was here and it, they went through some stuff. No, it's the same place. It's the same room that created all that, that, the essence, the air still has to be in there a little bit. And you can, you can feel the, just the magic that happened in that place. And obviously if it was, if it was okay and the Beatles liked it because it was nostalgic or whatever, that would be one thing, but to have other people move in like the Pink Floyds and, mm -hmm. the, and the, all the movie stuff, it actually has to be a first class, a number one place that every people have to be lined up to work in that space. Well, yeah, and it was, it definitely overwent, it underwent some changes over the years. And so I'm in Studio Two. Studio One is enormous. I mean, it might even have a, a higher ceiling if that's possible. But it's, it's huge, it's cavernous. And they built it as a stage originally because they'd always recorded okay. bands and orchestras in a stage, you know, or in a church or something like that. So they built a stage and then recorded it that way. They even had places for people to come sit and watch. And they realized, all right, well, we really don't need people to sit and watch to record because they cough and they move their chairs and they, we don't need that. So then they changed it to like the, the orchestra would sit on the floor and then people 
who were in there to listen or watch or whatever could sit up on what was the stage. And then eventually they, they broke that down. But they, they made it a real, like, beautiful place so that it could have been on TV. Now, it wasn't. But it, it could have been, it was like that kind of thing. It was a performance area as much as it was a recording studio. But, yeah, I mean, originally the value of the recording was not really thought of as, as music that you would sell on discs necessarily as was making movie music. And, and the first invention of, like, stereo happened at Abbey Road. Hey, guys, this is Ryan Condal, the executive producer, writer, creator of House of the Dragon, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, and you should download and subscribe. Keep doing that. My mom was really into classical music. She had this big box set of records, and most of it, I think, was the London Philharmonic okay. uh, that had done it. So I would, I mean, I don't have it with me right this second, but I would have a guess that probably some of that or a lot of it was recorded there because I know that, that they, the box set that she had was meant for commercial distribution. So they did it purposefully to do that. So I would bet that uh, some or a lot of it was done there. Yeah, and they showed Glenn Miller, I guess he was coming over during World War II to entertain troops or to do his thing over here. He stopped into Abbey Road. They did film it and his plane was shot down uh, over the, the, the channel, you know, so that was it. That was his last recording session there at Abbey Road, but it was filmed, you know. So it just, just a lot of just deep history in there for sure. Uh, and to be in this room and they start showing pictures of different people and suddenly you start to recognize that spot in the room that you're in, right? And well, they- unfortunately, we, we kind of take this for granted now. I mean, we're, we're doing this show on a computer in your living room and in my living room. Right. Back then, you know, even in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s and 90s, like if you wanted a professional recording, it had to be done in a recording studio to, to have a space like this. That was the top of the top. And then the other cool thing, too, is from what you're saying, people who were always constantly, we can do this better. We can we can make it sound better. Mm-hmm. We can make innovations. Never just like, well, this is it. You'll never get anything better than this space. Well, maybe you can. Maybe the mics can be better. Maybe the way that we place them and the, the room construction. So constantly moving forward is a very interesting, that, that's what I really love about this whole story. And, and they, they wrapped it into the whole thing too. So it was like, well, and, the, and so in the sixties, so they talk about when like you got electronic microphones in the twenties, that changed recording a lot. And obviously picks up a lot of stuff and you don't want to record by a train. You don't want to record, you know, in a factory zone, right. you know, that kind of thing. And then in the sixties, well, yeah, in the fifties recording on tape changed it a lot because then you weren't on wax, you know, getting this kind of in one take all together. On tape, you would stop and say, all right, let's try that again and, and record over it. Or you record it three times and say, all right, the beginning of the first part, uh, first take is good. The end of the second take is the best. And then the middle of the third is the best. You can cut those up and, and splice it together and start to, to edit. Whereas, you know, you really just you get your best take on wax all together at once. That's how it was. And they like, again, in the 60s, which coincided with the Beatles coming along was, they went from the BTR, which is like the British tape recorder, I think is what it was, something like that, to the BTR-4, which was a four-track. Now, four tracks, I mean, we can use four tracks really easily right now if we want to there, Jackson. But that was a huge innovation in the early 60s. So then you can do more on the vocals, right? Or you can record everything on two tracks 
and then record your vocals like individually against those, you know, and really make them stand out. So you're right. It wasn't just these things happen. This was a spot in the world where these things were innovated, right? And, and right. put to good use in, you know, the Beatles records. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can go into the whole thing about, you know, George Martin really being the it's synonymous with Abbey Road and kind of the, the mad genius behind putting the sound together. So it, it, it's insane to think that all of those things came together at the same spot. I mean, you had the right, you had guys who were interested in moving things forward. Hey, let's try something a little bit different on this one. Let's, you know, you were talking about multi-tracking, you know, we can put another track on there. Well, Let's put another track and another track mm -hmm. and put it together to make it sound like something no one had ever heard before. And then to have somebody running the ship who said, okay, I, this is all just, it could be chaos, but I can make this work together. Yeah, it's just, it, and and then from there you move into what would become, you know, Dark Side of the Moon was recorded there. Right. And to me, I, I know that, that I know that the, if you were going to, if you were going to ask me, what's your favorite record that was recorded there? I love the Beatles, love them, love everything that they've done, but that love came later on for me. So to me, Dark Side of the Moon will always be just the masterpiece that came out of this place. Yeah, what was amazing, they didn't even bring up like the name Alan Parsons didn't even come up. Like that that's how big time how many people wow. come through there like they didn't even okay. mention Alan Parsons. Look, it was it was an amazing time. Look, it, so you, you walk in, yes, and then boom, you're in the stereo. I want to kind of walk walk you through here. So you walk in, okay. get get in the right. They got a little room section off if they, you want to buy, you know, their they're wares that you can get in the gift shop for the most part, but I can get that most any day. So I'm like, no, just get me in here. There's a little room with a couple of pianos in it and a Hammond organ and there's a Mellotron and there's, there's all this neat stuff in there. And then they had microphones kind of throughout the years. They had old recording boards in there that had been used and, okay. and, and talking about maybe some of the artists that had used them and things. They said there were these three or four great pianos. And at one point, it said, anybody play a little bit of piano? And a couple of people raised their hands like, yeah, come on up here. So they got to come out there and play wow. pianos, yes, like the Beatles had used and like Pink Floyd had used in the studio and say, everybody, you know, on the count of three, you know, hit these blue notes, right? Hit, hit this stuff right here. And it's basically the end of the day of a day in life. Like this is how they got that note, that coda kind of from four different pianos at once. I'm like, no way. That's so cool. And if only you'd given me piano lessons, dad, I could have done that today. <laughs> Actually, I think as long as you had hands, you probably could have done it. They had like tape on it, you know, like hit the ones with the tape. You uh. Know? Uh, but no, it was fun to see. And then between like some of these organs and the pianos, there's a there's an exit way door out. There's a little space. And then you go down to the right, there's this old bomb shelter. But they used it as an echo chamber. They used it over the years as the echo chamber. So they would like reverb John's vocals down there and then they would mix them with what was recorded clean in the studio and together they made something special and and that was just really neat to see just the technology and the how they really set it up physically how it all worked man being able to see that was really neat yeah and, and what i love about that story is that the thing was a bomb shelter 
right? They didn't build it for that. But somebody said, I don't know if it was George Martin, could have been, maybe. Hey, why don't you go down there? I think I think that would be a cool or an interesting, we could get something interesting out of going, going down there. So that became then the reverb chamber just from then on. Pretty amazing, yeah. And then, yeah. And then upstairs is the control room. And you were allowed to walk up into the control room, you know? So I just marched myself right up there. Uh, of course, now they have this huge, enormous state-of-the-art board, and they have, you know, video cameras and stuff down there, so they can be able to watch what they're doing. You could produce TV. I mean, I, I guess they they did a show called Live from Abbey Road Studios there for a bit for a number of years. But yeah, I got to sit right in front of the console and take my picture. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, you can look down through the window, and you can see you could have watched. The Beatles doing Sgt. Pepper from right here. You could have watched them do Eleanor Rigby. You, you could have seen Pig Floyd. You could have seen them noodling. They also use Studio 3, I think, quite a bit, which is the smallest of the three. But, you know, fine for a, for a band um, of four people. But they were in Studio 2, too. You could watch them doing Dark Side of the Moon from right up there. But you probably weren't watching. You were up there to, to twist the knobs, I suppose. But it was neat to just be in that room and suck it up. Like, who has been up here? Like, Think of the people who have worked here. This is unbelievable. It was so cool, you know. So, and, and like I said, they still have all that stuff. Now, they, they mentioned the board that they used in the 70s, which was custom built by EMI, and the one that they used for Dark Side of the Moon. That was sold recently for like $2.2 million. <laughs> because there's really nothing else like it, and it was used on Dark Side of the Moon, not to mention a few other choice things over the years. So that's pretty incredible. But the thing they have up there now is like a spaceship. It's it's kind of amazing. Well, I remember watching uh, when the Black Album came out from Metallica. They have Nothing Else Matters, the video, and there's a, there's a part, a shot where they're doing the orchestral part and it's a shot of the board that they have i don't know where they recorded that but you can watch all the levels and like they had a zillion tracks for that yeah to to i would i know nothing about it but yes i'd love to sit there and just what does this knob do it goes up it goes down how do you that would be enough that would be a cool next class i guess is sound is coming in from mm -hmm. what's being recorded right mm -hmm. how do you as the engineer okay here's how i sift through this you want to make it sound clear but you've got a lot to deal with. So how do you set the levels? How does that work? That would fascinate me to just get that. It's a lot. So you were talking about Alan Parsons, mm -hmm. you know, and being a sound engineer. There's a lot that goes into it that you have to kind of filter through because the band is just, they're just doing their thing. They're just playing. Right. How do I translate that into something that can be recorded? You're right. Yeah. And, and then how do you manipulate it? What kind of sounds do you put over it? What kind of... Things besides instruments can you use? Obviously, Pink Floyd experimented quite a bit with that, as did the Beatles. I mean, you look, Pink Floyd really recorded most all their albums at, at Abbey Road through Wish You Were Here. And obviously, the Beatles were still working in the late 60s there quite a bit, so they would pass them, run into them at least listen, you know, hear some stuff or whatever, what they're doing. Their record, which has got to be incredible, bah, can you imagine being like David Gilmore? Say, okay, well, Sid couldn't cut it, so now I'm new to this band. What are we doing? Oh, we're going to hang out at Abbey Row where the Beatles are. Okay, that's better yeah. than whatever else it was I was doing before. Yeah, yeah. Could you, could you, I, I don't know if this ever happened, but could you imagine there was some, they were in there recording and Gilmore is sitting in the control room or sitting somewhere just kind of soaking it all in? I don't know, but yeah. 
that's that's what's great to me is that the just the, the kind of the camaraderie and the fact that they all wanted to do the same thing they all wanted to put these records out to express themselves and somebody like that being in awe of someone else mm-hmm. you'd have to you'd have to be for as great as Pink Floyd was the Beatles came first and I think it was what was that one I think we were talking about Duran Duran mm-hmm. and John Taylor was out in front of Capitol Records and he was talking about the Walk of Fame and he's like you know it's funny that it moves forward like the Beatles Duran Duran comes after the Beatles on the Walk of Fame well of course they do that's how it works and then Buddy Holly was before them so it's just it's just a progression to have two worlds collide or overlap at some point in time that's awesome yeah and they Duran Duran did record their first album Duran Duran there I think they they went back in for Notorious and our Duran Duran episode is a very popular one just the, the string through everyone who's played there over the years when you start to look at it from you know Sting's recorded there the Oasis as I mentioned Paul has continued to record there Paul I think recorded Recorded part of three, his most recent record, three, McCartney three. There. Okay. And it's funny because it is a residential neighborhood. I like living here because it's relatively quiet and as do most of our neighbors. And the thing is in like the sixties, once they started to amplify and do rock music, it was still very much classical and maybe some big band. Once they started to do that, the neighbors started to complain a whole lot more, honestly, you know, because I guess, you know, flutes and woodwinds, they don't pierce through the, through the, the rock, the way that the rock and roll music does. So yes, they, they showed how at some point they eventually started to use, they look like drapes. They're almost like full pillows, which at first I think they filled with seaweed to help dampen it and, and rule out sound. They determined that was a fire hazard, so they had to put some fire retardant stuff in there. But, you know, they've, they've done that over the years. However, when McCartney was in there a few years ago, he's like, well, I want to get some new sound out of here, right? Let's do something somebody hasn't done before. So like I said, that exit out into a little tiny room, and then you go down to the right into the bomb shelter, which is now the echo chamber. Yes, there's this tiny, small room. It's almost like a mud room because there's an exit there. You can you can get out if you need to. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really, there's nothing there. It's just a place to step in before you step to where you're going next. Maka wanted to put some drums in there, and they started doing that one day, getting the drum sound out of there. But like I said, it's right next to the exit, which is right near where people live. And they got complaints. And like, see, that's why I should live there. I should live right next door. I'll call up. I'm like, Correct. who's in there? It's like, that's Paul McCartney. I'm like, you let him make all the noise he damn well wants. <laughs> you know, whereas if I hear some drumming, who's in there? That's Ed Sheeran. You tell that ginger Muppet to shut it off. <laughs> oh, poor Ed Sheeran. I, I think he's a lot of things, but poor is probably not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, no, it, it was cool, you know, and it was a 90-minute talk. So they really did run through the kind of the whole history of recording and the company and EMI itself and, and all that. It's it's no longer owned by EMI. It's it's owned by, um, is, is it Universal or? Yeah, I think Universal owns, or yeah, maybe not, maybe Virgin. So I don't know. It, it got sold off, but I know for a while it was kind of in a parallel spot because mm-hmm. there was a plan to make it into flats or something, which is what they do to everything. So I'm really glad that cooler heads prevailed and they saved it. And I think now it's a it's on some kind of uh, historical register, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's level two historical register because it is still working studio. I mean, it still works most every day of the week. There's something going on there. There was I got to stick my nose in. Into Studio One, it was enormous, but 
that's just because it was the door was open and there were some guys going in there to record or do something. So I, I just kind of looked in there like, wow, it's like an airplane hangar just about. It's it's really big and you would never think it given where it is. I mean, I, you can see from the street how big most houses are and things like that. But it, it's got some nice, nice space back there. Yeah, but the, well, I guess that's that's kind of part of the problem with that too, because for something that's that big in that spot in London, mm-hmm. if you were going to make it into flats, would be a zillion dollars. You could make yeah you a could. tons of money off of that. But but like I said, I am glad that they 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 kept that not only for as a working it, not only as a historical deal, but. It, a place where the people still record because I think it is important to to keep music alive. And even though you can do this in your wherever now garage basement, mm-hmm. you can produce something that's pretty good. There is nothing like recording at a professional studio with equipment and professional sound engineers. Yeah, no doubt about it, you know. And look, it, it had some ups and downs. I mean, in the '40s, they had a famous Italian composer refused to. He went in there and he just he refused to. To, to uh, record in there. He's like, it's so bad. It's like the room is so dead. I can't get any sound out of here, you know, whatever. And that was when it was kind of purpose-built to be almost like a performing stage kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they eventually ripped that down. Got in the 60s. It, it was better, but it still wasn't perfect. But by the early 80s, they had really fixed it up so it was kind of state-of-the-art and it, it, it had fantastic sound in it. And that's when they did start to get John Williams and and they did the Star Wars and the first Raiders of the Lost Ark in there. And it's all these amazing movie scores in there over the years. And so, like, that beefed it back up again. And suddenly, yeah, five, six, seven days a week, you're recording in there, doing something. And they had the big screen in there so you can match it to, you know, the, the video, match it to the film. Okay. I think that's so neat. And you've seen them from over the years doing this. I'm like, that is really cool. That it's it's not just historic. It's working it's mm-hmm. it's a big part of it but the thing is man they showed i don't know if it's the late 70s or the early 80s they were going to change it okay they were going to because the ceilings are so huge they're gonna make studio one two levels first level is a car park because there's no parking around there and then upstairs it was going to be the recording studio and even that they were going to bifurcate they were going to cut in half and then studio two i think they they, they too were going to put storage underneath it so they're going to have the, the downstairs be storage and then make it instead of, you know, 20 feet or, or 15 feet or something like that. And, uh, and then have the recording studio there. And everyone's so glad that they didn't, you know, they didn't fundamentally change it. That's just, you know, and now it is a historical place, right? Because it is the same as it ever was when it was doing all this incredible recording and, and pushing the technology forward, capturing all this amazing music. So it's the same. And, and that that's another reason I was just glad that I was there today. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did they have, you said they had uh, pianos there. Did they have any other instruments that are like house instruments or everybody kind of brings their own? Yeah, I think everyone, I mean, I think they, yeah, they bring in for the most part their stuff. They might have some storage of some things around. I don't know. But as far as what's sitting in there, I mean, look, pianos are big things and it, it's hard to move them around, you know, hard on people. It's hard on the pianos. It's hard on the floors. So uh, making keeping pianos around just kind of makes sense. Plus, it's such an essential composing instrument. But then, yeah, but no, there were no drums or anything laying around. Plus, look, they, they, we had seats in there and a stage and a projector. So it's not in its normal state, one could say. But if there were six different rows, 12 different rows 
of 10 to 12 seats. We'll say it's 12 by 12, 140 seats. And then there were probably eight people per row. Um, so let's say that's, and it's 125 quid a piece. It's like, yeah, it's like 12,000 to 13,000 quid every time they give one of these lectures, plus whatever they get on the, the souvenir you know, stand or the, the shop as well. They were doing two a day. So it's like, 25,000, 50,000 weekend, 150,000 for the whole thing. You know, that's some salaries right there that they'll, they'll pay with that. Uh, maybe those, the two authors will, will get a little cut of it as well, but it's huge for the fans. And you well, should I was going to say, well, I was going to say, well, you, so you said you couldn't get tickets to the first round of this. And then, so it opened up again. I mean, was this packed or was it like capacity with what you went to? It, well, it wasn't. And I just wonder if they sold all the tickets they intended to sell and then they just had more seats so people could spread out a little bit. Because okay. I was, you know, people were wearing masks. Not everybody was. I had it kind of off and on a little bit. So I don't know if it was intentional that there would be seats people can spread out a little bit, uh, or if if it was unsold. I don't know. But I, I, it was very comfortable the whole time. I was in like the third or fourth row, and it was, uh, it, it was fun. It was. It was kind of a chance of a lifetime that I just didn't want to miss. I'm glad I took advantage. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me that when you when it comes down to it, it's crazy that people would actually want to go and see this because okay, Paul McCartney wasn't there. I mean, there wasn't anybody there that was that was famous. But the place is so famous and it holds such a place in everyone's heart that you just want to go see it. Just to see the place where this happened is is cool and there is no other place like it and and if I want to use the word magic but I mean magic really happened at that at that place I mean they got in it, it wasn't even just one thing like oh yeah the Beatles recorded one yes. record here one and, and it was pretty on. good no this was this was their home and to think about that and there was a great I saw a great interview Ringo was being interviewed by uh, Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics and he was talking and Dave Stewart was just fanboying out about all this he asked him a whole bunch of questions but one of the things was the Abbey Road cover mm. he said where did, where did, what, okay what what is the meaning behind the cover what what did, what were you trying to say about the world or whatever and Ringo was like listen we were sitting around we were thinking about do we get artwork done do we go to the Maui volcano to get a picture and finally somebody just said let's just Walk across the street, take a picture, and that's it. But he's like, it doesn't mean anything other than we just needed something to go on the front. Yeah, but I heard that it was like they were batting around. Should we go to the Taj Mahal and get our? Yeah, picture? yeah. Should just, we go to Antarctica and get our picture taken <laughs> in front of an iceberg? And George was like, Why don't we just walk across the road? <laughs> <laughs> but in that one moment. Because I was looking at I was looking at stuff for this uh, show. Just the amount of people, like everybody, takes a picture there. It's so iconic in so many people's lives that that shot, the record, and the place. It's it's amazing that it's just that it, it's really amazing that it's still there and that you can see it and it's still part of music going forward too. It's still a working place well and you talk about people want to take the picture. I see people risking life and limb every day. <laughs> trying to recreate that picture because it's still a very busy street and, and there's buses coming and there's eh, and, and it's a crosswalk and look people are very good in Britain if there's a crosswalk they're good about stopping I find them to be good drivers that way but you, you can't always rely on that and I'm like you someone is going to get clobbered out here I mean I know people know where they are they have to expect it drivers but still man it's uh I, I'm going to hire a photographer to to do it with me and my family, like at five in the morning on June 21st, like the longest day of the year, where the sun's already been up for like two hours at that point, but still nobody's out. 
So then we'll go down there and, and do it at that point where there's some light and then we risk less. But yeah, I mean, every day I see people doing it. I'm like, you're, you're nuts. You know, do you not see the bus coming? Don't show in the middle of the road. You figured you uh, spent enough time and effort to get there. You're getting this picture. So are you going to wear the white suit when you do this? Yeah, no, everyone's going to have their own thing. I'm not sure exactly. My buddy, my buddy Edwin, you remember Edwin? He, he was like, you should get a smoking jacket. Um, and enjoy the high life of London. I'm like, where am I going to get a smoking jacket? But it does sound like a good idea. And then I could be smoking something. A pipe, of course. There you go. Yes, going across the street, holding the dog with one hand and the child with the other. Because that's the four of us, right? <laughs> oh, good times. I wonder if, the, I wonder if the, the bus drivers and the cab drivers must just know that when you get to that area probably somebody gonna be there trying to do something you gotta gotta slow down yeah you gotta be ready just watch out absolutely hey this is action jackson the wolf and i are coming at you (laughs) on the ugly american werewolf in london podcast and then you know (laughs) they said oh you know what you don't have to use that bathroom you can use the uh the more private one down the road just someone knows i was walking out i didn't really have to go but i heard somebody say that I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go take a piss in Abbey Road. So I walked down and I, I'm like, I could get a T-shirt made. So I pissed at Abbey Road. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine the electricity that's just in the air there that you can feel going into it. Because, I mean, like you said, you've been past it a million times. You know, you've seen it. Oh, it's great. But to actually be inside, it's got to be something pretty special. Yeah, and they, like I said, they don't often do that. And the, the two authors, they were saying, hey, just being in here is pretty special. You don't get to do this every day and you think about and they played a lot of the music that was recorded there and not only the Beatles and, and stuff we would know but stuff from like the 40s and 50s pop stuff that was maybe big in England you know some girl named Ruby who had a, a song in the charts every single week of 1955 or something like that I didn't know who okay. she was they talked about Cliff Richard like he was Elvis like the British Elvis I feel like he was more like the British Rick Nelson, maybe. Um, <laughs> you know, it was my mom's favorite, Rick Nelson. But, you know, they talked about how he had a band. He had a couple bands, and the Shadows uh, were one of them. Uh, and the Shadows made records of their own. And they kind of had guitar songs that would have influenced people like Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton and uh, the people who came later. Just a, an amazing... You, an hour and a half, and I wasn't even ready to leave. I mean, it didn't even really do it all. I won't say it didn't do it justice because I thought it was amazing. Now, I didn't think it was as amazing as the two guys behind me. These guys were super fans. They were freaking out. Every time they would mention something about the Beatles or, or Pink Floyd, they oh, my God. They, you know, this was, that, was re- that was recorded in this room. Or this is the actual piano. They, it was, oh, Jesus Christ. I was worried that... <laughs> The back of my chair was going to be all sticky or something like that after the show. I take it. I mean, they were talking the whole time. It was kind of funny at first. But then when they started getting, oh, my Lord, you, man. (laughs) Take it easy, guys. You know, it's, uh, we'll get you home soon. We'll get you a change of pants. Don't worry about it. Uh, But then. I mean, for them, it was obviously holy ground, you know. They were talking about how, you know, Roger, Roger Waters might be touring next year. God, I get my left arm to get tickets. And I was thinking how lucky I am. Getting tickets to Roger Waters in London, that's that's no easy feat, I'm sure. But I got to see him a couple times in the last 10 years, and I'm glad to have done so. Yeah, I mean, Pink Floyd, I, I know it was huge for us. Our number three episode on Delicate Sound of Thunder was, I think we made that episode, Jackson, then we knew 
we could do podcasting. Like we weren't really sure what we were doing before that. And we still weren't real good at it yet. But when we realized, look, we've got a lot of stuff that we can talk about passionately and go in depth on that we love. And certainly Delicate Sound of Thunder was a touchstone for both of us as teenagers. It was, in, in fact, mixed at Abbey Road Studios, just to kind of run Oh, that my in. God. Not recorded, obviously, because it is a live nice. album, but was, was mixed there, which is... So cool, man. And so, yeah, this is this is part, this is, what we were trying to think of a good idea for a podcast, an American's experience in London. What do you want to hear about what it's like to get your groceries delivered here? Or, you know, you want to talk about, hey, if the dollar goes up against the pound, do I go out and buy a bunch of junk? I mean, who cares about that kind of stuff? But adventures, rock and roll adventures, and going to Abbey Road Studios, check. Yeah, yeah, and and the fact that you know this thing, like I said at the beginning, this thing was billed as recorded Abbey Road adjacent. <laughs> it only made sense that, given the opportunity, you would go there to actually experience that. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah, and it made me realize I gotta go find more. I got I gotta go to more places around town while I'm here. You know, gotta go to Ronnie Scott's. Talking about was it eel pie? Got to go to there. I, you know, I got to get to more venues. Hopefully that will happen next year as we, I guess, grow out of this virus. I, I really don't know. It was better this year than last year. Does that mean that next year will also be better? Will it be the same? Could it get worse? I don't know. That's what we should do when I go there. We should take it. We should just plan a day mm. and just do like kind of like a walking tour of all the like cool spots in London. There's um, I saw something when I first got here. It's like they'll put you in the back of a sweet rolls and they'll roll you around town for a few hours, like check out 12, 15 different spots or something like that. We can take pictures and shit like that. It was a few hundred quid, so I'm like, eh, I don't know. If, if like five of us went, it would, you know, it would probably work. It was like two of us, was like, well, I don't know. Why don't we do it anyway? You know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> the, final thoughts on Abbey Road. You think of Wish You Were Here and Dark Side of the Moon Alone. Take take all the movie stuff out and take away the Beatles. And just having those two records, to me, makes it pretty huge in the pantheon of places where recorded music took place. Obviously, the Beatles, it was their playground. It was their office. It was theirs to do as they took. They recorded everything there. So it'll always be synonymous with the Beatles, but those Pink Floyd records definitely affected us uh, in a big way. Right, right. And like I said at the, before, I definitely was more of a Pink Floyd, Floyd fan as a as a younger person and a teenager growing up. So to kind of, I kind of worked into the Beatles backwards instead of starting there and working my way up through the seventies. But yeah, just, just the, the amount of creativity that came out of that place is groundbreaking. Change the world. Change the world. Absolutely. And the most classic story that I can really recall, besides all the amazing Beatles stories and the times, all the different recordings they did was the time Pink Floyd was in recording Wish You Were Here. Of course, Wish You Were Here does have some overtones, some stories about Sid Barrett, their former lead singer, who'd kind of gone off the deep end with drugs and schizophrenia. And they just kind of continued to roll on without him. Like, well, look, we got a good thing going here, so we can't let his screwed-up life kind of ruin our up-and-coming recording and musical career. So we're just going to soldier on and go on without him. So they're in there. They're in, I don't know which studio. I think it's Studio 2. Might be Studio 3. Recording Wish You Were Here. And in comes this kind of 
fat, weird-looking guy. He's got no hair on his head. He's got no eyebrows. He's got no sun on his skin. He's very doughy and blobby and out of shape, and he's not saying anything. And he's just kind of wandering around. And eventually someone's like, well, who, who is that? Who's that weird guy? And it turns out it was Sid, and everyone was just kind of taken aback because Sid was always a very good-looking guy, always with a quick wit and something to say, uh, very thin and fashionable, and now he's got no hair, he's got no eyebrows. Because of his medication and his lifestyle, he's now kind of a big blob, and he just didn't look like himself, and no one had seen him in so very long. And here he is, how he knew they were going to be in there that day, how he could get in there, could just walk in and no one would stop him or say, well, today's not the day you can go in there. I don't know. But it's such a random and true story and part of the legacy of Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett, who in the mid, well, really from Dark Side of the Moon on, had used him as a muse after the fact, writing stories about the, the lunatic is on the grass, you know, and wish you were here. There's a lot of stuff about Sid in those songs, in those albums. And yeah, this is a strange day in which he decided to just return. And I don't know if even anybody ever spoke to him. It was just like, what is he doing here? And oh my God, that's Sid? Crazy. Well, that's our take on my visit to historic Abbey Road Studios during the middle of its 90th birthday celebration here in November 2021 on Abbey Road in London. And I can't even tell you how amazing it was. I think I used that word amazing probably too much during the recording, but you're just in awe. If you love rock and roll music, you love the Beatles, you love Pink Floyd, you love where it all came from, you can't help but feel some sense of grandeur just being in the same room, which is about as big as an NBA basketball court with a huge high ceiling, and think about all the amazing music, all the amazing times that people have had there. It's changed the world, the world of rock music, the world of recorded music, the world of cinema score and movie music. It's all changed from this same address over the last 90 years. And I was so happy to be able to go. And the two authors were incredible. They had great knowledge. And I'm really hopeful maybe we can get one or the both of them on here sometime so we can do a little bit more in-depth of what they know. They know so much about Abbey Road now. They're going to be writing another book. And of course, we'd love to have them on to promote that. But just to learn some of the stuff that they've become privy to, going into the archives, doing their research. I bet there's so many amazing little facts. I couldn't even do it justice. The show's maybe 45 minutes this week without the intro and the outro. Their talk was 90 minutes and it could have been a lot longer than that. So it was really just a pleasure to be in this historic spot. And I hope people don't get clobbered trying to recreate the picture. I know it's iconic. I know if you're there, you've got to take the opportunity to get your picture there. Just be careful, please, everybody. When you're out there trying to get the picture at the Abbey Road Zebra Crossing, don't get clobbered by a cab or a bus or something like that. Just be careful. Watch out, all right? And I want to thank everybody for listening out there all over the world. It's been a tough year. This show kind of commemorates our first year in podcasting. It was about a year ago after the launch of this show that we started into podcasting. And like I said during the show, I wanted to do something about my experiences in London. Not really sure what to do. When I realized that London has huge rock and roll history, that I live right near Abbey Road, that I'm going to be able to go to some of these great venues and see some great artists while I'm over here, started to talk to Jackson about it. And we knew we had the passion to talk in depth on a weekly basis about music and things 
things related to rock and roll that we love and certainly being able to visit Abbey Road Studios is an extraordinary opportunity and we had to talk about it here today. So after a year of podcasting, we really thank all of you all around the world from the thousands of downloads, the tens of thousands of streams in more than 80 countries around the world. We thank you. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying it, we implore you, please go out and give us a five-star or a very positive review somewhere, wherever you get your podcast, where it's good pods, Podchaser, Apple, Amazon, Google, anywhere you get your stuff, please give us a review. It just helps us find more listeners like you and can help us improve the show long-term. If you want to see all of our past episodes, you can go to www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. Com. And of course, we want you to check us out on Twitter at Ugly underscore Werewolf and at ActionJack72. You can shoot us messages, you can DM us, you can let us know the albums, the bands, the concerts, the movies, the rock and roll events that you want us to talk about here on the show. Now next week, to commemorate its 30th anniversary, we're going to review U2's Octone Baby, which was huge for the band and huge in the lives of one Action Jackson and the Wolf Mac B back in our freshman year of college. It could not have been any bigger in 1991 and 92 in America, and it really helped the band kind of define themselves, not only at that point, but going forward. The band was kind of distraught after the whole rattle and hum, both the movie and the album, although sold incredibly well, didn't go over well in the eyes of some fans and some critics, made them look like they were talking down to Americans about their own music, and they weren't sure if the band was even going to be able to make it in 1990 and 1991 but a few magical things happened which we'll talk about and it offered up what is probably their greatest album ever at least in my opinion going to be some debate on that for sure but Octung Baby was huge it revitalized them and allowed them to keep going doing stadiums all over the world to this day so this comes out on Thanksgiving in America I hope everyone has a great one a happy one a safe one and as always we want all of you rock and rollers all around the world to be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.